Somehow it didn't surprise me that someone tapped early in his life to be a Unitarian minister would end up an explorer in the Arctic, an anthropologist who got to know bands of Inuit people never before encountered by European people of European descent. We are, after all, the spiritual descendants of Viljamur Stephenson, Unitarian explorer. He traveled the Arctic in search of new experiences, new peoples, new lands. He learned from others about the way they lived their lives. He tried on new ways of being in the world. Me, I love exploring. I love looking at maps and dreaming about places to go. Eric and I have done our share of exploring together. From an early age, I decided that I wanted to see all 50 of the United States. When Eric and I met 13 years ago, I discovered that we shared the same goal. Together, we completed our lists five years ago this spring. We were both eager to explore our country. But why? What motivates a desire to adventure boldly and explore? Certainly, part of the attraction is to see new things, to have new experiences, to meet new people, to experience new regional and local cultures, be they red and green chili sauce in New Mexico, slack key guitar in Hawaii, or taking a bush plane with giant inflated tires over a mountain pass in Alaska. Part of the motivation for exploration is getting to know the beautiful diversity of humanity we share our nation with. But it's also, as Thoreau wrote on one of his famous journeys through New England, to claim kindredship with our mother, the earth. We explore to get outside of ourselves, to transcend our little lives and our four walls, and to really be a part of our world. We explore, in part, to seek something of the sublime. Annie Dillard, in her essay, An Expedition to the Pole, writes this. Polar explorers, one gathers from their accounts, sought at the poles something of the sublime. Simplicity and purity attracted them. They set out to perform clear tasks in uncontaminated lands. The land's austerity held them. They praised the land's spare beauty as if it were a moral or spiritual quality, icy halls of cold sublimity. They went partly in search of the sublime, and they found it in the only way it can be found, here or there, around the edges, tucked into the corners of the days. For they were people, all of them, even the British, and despite the purity of their conceptions, they man-hauled their humanity to the poles. They man-hauled their frail flesh to the poles and encountered conditions so difficult that, for instance, it commonly took members of Scott's South Polar Party several hours each morning just to put on their boots. They man-hauled their sweet human absurdity to the poles, when Robert E. Peary and Matthew Henson reached the North Pole in 1909, Peary planted there in the frozen ocean the flag of the Deeks, 
the colors of the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity of which Peary was an alumnus. Dillard continues, polar explorers must adapt to conditions. They must adapt on the one hand to physical limitations. They must adapt on the other hand to ordinary emotional limitations. The hard part is in finding a workable compromise. If you are Peary and have planned your every move down to the last jot and tittle, you can perhaps get away with carrying a deke flag to the North Pole if it will make you feel good. If you are with the Franklin expedition and do not know what you are doing or where you are, but think you cannot eat food except from sterling silver tableware, you cannot get away with it. Wherever we go, there seems to be only one business at hand, that of finding a workable compromise between the sublimity of our ideas and the absurdity of the fact of us. Certainly, Eric and I have explored our world, the little bit of it that we've managed to explore, as a way to connect us with our humanity, the good and bad parts of it, our gifts and weaknesses all at once. We humans with grand and lofty ideas that we so often fail to achieve, sometimes spectacularly, we explore to get in touch with that part of ourselves, our humanity. We explore because we are curious creatures, because sometimes we are capable of learning from other places, other peoples, other lands, other cultures, what we are incapable of finding in ourselves, by ourselves. Last summer, Eric and I took a journey to Iceland, home of Viljamur Stefansson's parents and probable inspiration for his Arctic journeys. It's not surprising, once you see Iceland, why it's a place of explorers, of the land and of the spirit. Why it became a settling place for Viking explorers in the 9th century AD, why it enchants visitors and inspires its residents to believe in magical creatures, the Huldefolk, who live under rocks and are never seen by humans, but whose presence in the land must be taken seriously. I went to Iceland to see something new, and I took home lessons of my humanity. I went to explore a place that I had only seen in pictures and heard in stories, and came home with my own pictures and my own stories, and also a deeper sense, a deeper understanding of resilience, of resistance. I didn't need to get on a plane to learn that lesson, though. I needed only to explore within. Thoreau reminds us that our kinship with nature, however we experience it, is metaphor. And the lessons we learn from our exploration are as well. Certainly, the call to explore far-off lands to seek the sublime has its own challenges. And yet, it's easier to discover a new world, Thoreau wrote, than to discover the world most familiar to us, the world that is right around us, the world in which our roots are planted. There are some lessons I've learned through exploring, and they are mostly in this vein. Iceland, you see, is a land of extremes. There are frozen glaciers atop the mountains and volcanoes 
that erupt at a moment's notice. Anyone who's ever planned a trip there is probably familiar with the website, is an Icelandic volcano erupting now? You go to it and it just says yes or no. <laughs> and it's likely to say either one. There are frigid, clear rivers everywhere you look, waterfalls from the glacial runoff, barely above the freezing point at which they would be ice. And then you turn around and see steam vents and geysers and boiling, bubbling pots of water. Our English word geyser even comes from the Icelandic where the original one was found. Amidst a landscape that seems painted from a narrow slice of the Earth's palette, greens, browns, grays, and blacks, rust and cream and steely blue, there are, however, marvelous and numerous bits of color. Puffins, with their black and white feathers and bright orange beaks, nesting just under the lips of enormous sea cliffs amidst the sunshine yellow flowers. Rainbows, too, abound in the mist and the fog, piercing even the grayest day with their display. And everywhere, just everywhere, creeping over the green-gray moss are carpets of purple, wild mountain thyme blooming under the almost constant sunlight of summer. None of this color is around for long. Even the puffins head out to sea for months once their chicks can fly, but it's all there, filling in around the edges. And the landscape that seems so harsh is magically alive, as if elves had planted a garden just for their delight. In the cracks of dark black volcanic rocks are tiny bits of life, flowers clinging for existence and stretching to meet the sun. And then, here's an exciting part. The humans come along. And what was once toxic, scalding steam erupting from the earth is harnessed for geothermal power and heat, enough to grow bananas, tomatoes, and tropical plants in naturally heated hothouses in Iceland. Really, bananas. And suddenly, what was a rocky, moss-covered island just south of the Arctic Circle is revealed to be teeming with life, indigenous and not. Our lives are just like that. Sometimes we feel powerful. Sometimes we feel productive and bold, like a raging river. Our potential is evident. And sometimes our lives are gray and bleak. Sometimes they're downright inhospitable to beauty and growth. Sometimes when hope is hard to find, we see the extremes in our lives, the thick, icy glaciers, the vents of scalding steam, and we conclude that we should despair at the limitations life has placed on us. If we understand our spiritual ancestor, Henry David Thoreau, the lifeblood of our Mother Earth flows through us, though. We are drawn to nature because we are a part of it. And we each have the capacity to heal, the capacity to blossom forth in color, the capacity to break free of the narrow palette we are using to paint our lives. So today I ask, what are the resources we draw upon to do this? What are the ways in which we explore the inner life 
with the same gusto we use for explorations of other lands, of other cultures? What are the spiritual tools we use for exploration? Perhaps we explore the inner reaches of our souls sitting in meditation. Perhaps we choose another way, prayer or journaling or yoga. Spiritual practices, you see, are ways in which we explore the insides of our being. Spiritual practices help us get in touch with the possibility that we each have within us. When hope is hard to find, the practice of exploring our inner being can help us see the bits of life hiding in the most unexpected places. They can help us to make meaning when we are in pain. They can help us to ground ourselves in a connection with something greater than ourselves when all we can see are the tiny details of our own suffering. They can also remind us of the things we need to survive the harshest of inner climates. Annie Dillard writes of polar explorers <coughs> that they needed to adapt to physical and emotional limitations. Certainly, all of us need those skills, whether we're journeying to the pole or not. For most of us, that adaptation is not a matter of life and death. We are not facing down a hungry polar bear or struggling to survive on an ice flow at minus 40 degrees. The adaptability of teams of polar expeditions, however, was not dependent on their lead explorer alone. Peary's expedition was not more successful than Franklin's just because Peary himself was a better planner or because Franklin himself was too attached to silverware. Both of them, you see, assembled teams of explorers for their journeys, and the strengths and weaknesses of the teams together determined their fate. And so it is with the spirit that our adaptability and resilience is determined not just in what we do alone, but in what we do together. And that is the gift that religious community can give each of us, the gift of companionship on our spiritual journeys, the gift of transformation, the gift of a community in which our weaknesses are balanced by the strengths of others and in which our strengths are needed to balance others' weaknesses. Last Easter, we pondered the, no pondered the notion of transformation here and the ways in which we sought to transform our lives. None of the things that we wrote down on paper butterflies and hung on the walls are possible in isolation. All of them need to be practiced in relationships, in community. Forgiveness, kindness, gratitude, change, faith, facing our fears, reaching out. These are all things we do together. This community exists for spiritual exploration. We don't get, need to get on a plane to Iceland to commune with a greater power or to feel something move within us. We don't need to risk our lives on a journey to the North Pole to gain knowledge. We need only to come together. Here, we support one another in our spiritual exploration. With that support, it becomes possible to try new things, to break out of our spiritual ruts, to embrace the diversity of theology, of experience, of practice, and of belief.
that diversity that is inherent in this community. And our exploration sometimes leads us to places we never thought we'd end up. Sometimes it leads us somewhere where we encounter others in pain, where others have been beaten down by life and are seeing only barren fields where once great things stood. In those moments, we are called to respond to that pain with compassion. Sometimes, sometimes we get a glimpse of the possible. We see a burst of color in a dreary gray landscape. We see the moment in a child's eyes when she has figured out something new, when he has developed a new question and knows where to ask it. And in those moments, we see what is possible for us. Sometimes we see a rainbow in the mist, a flower in the cracks, a puffin on the edge of a great cliff, oblivious to the thousands of feet between it and the roaring sea. And in those moments, we know that everything will be okay, for our exploration has brought us back home. May it be so.